This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. The Haskins Lectureship on Science Policy was established through the generosity of Carol P. and Edna Haskins, founders of Haskins Laboratories. The Haskins were dedicated to improving the nation's understanding of the relationship between scientific progress and sound public policy. Carol Haskins was a member of the Rand Corporation's Board of Trustees for 20 years and served as an advisory trustee and member of the President's Council. Subra Suresh, director of the National Science Foundation, is the ninth Haskins Laureate. He spoke at RAN on May 17, 2012. Thank you so much. Good evening. Thank you so much for your uh, very kind introduction. I'm going to spend about uh, 30 to 40 minutes uh, talking about uh, some of the issues we face every day about science policy at the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation, as was just mentioned, was created in 1950 thanks to the efforts of uh, Dr. Vannevar Bush. And in fact, uh, that's Dr. Bush. Um, He was uh, trained as an electrical engineer. He was the first dean of engineering at MIT. So I never had the privilege to meet him. He passed away in the 70s. Uh, but I literally sat in the chair that he once sat in. That's my connection to him. And he also was one of the two co-founders of what is now known as Raytheon Corporation. Uh, He also headed the Carnegie Corporation uh, at one time before serving uh, in the U.S. government. This is the cover of the book that was reproduced uh, about a decade ago uh, that he authored, the report that he authored, that was so influential. So here was the uh, basic philosophy or thesis of that report. He argued, of course, there is a connection to the Has- uh, to Carol Haskins because Carol Haskins contributed significantly to this document. Um, the the report argued that innovation driven by science and engineering is essential for the prosperity of the country. And innovation necessarily arises from basic research in science and engineering. And basic research is best done at universities where young minds put their creative juices to work uh, along with faculty. And it also serves the purpose of human capital development. These young people will eventually go to uh, industry and uh, government and other other areas. They will take this knowledge from basic research, and that will serve the country well. So after a few attempts, uh, President Harry Truman accepted the report. It was approved by Congress, and NSF was born in 1950. The first-year budget for all of NSF was $212,000. And I recently, just three weeks ago, created a history wall at at NSF. Um, And we have the manual typewriter uh, typed uh, annual expenses for the first year, which is actually projected on the wall. So we've come a long way 
since uh, 1950. Uh, the current budget, uh, assuming it gets passed sometime this year, even after the election, uh, is uh, the president's request for NSF is uh, $7.36 billion. So before I go to talk about some of the current activities, I want to start with the fact that the U.S., especially since the Second World War, has been, uh, no matter whose metric you look at, has played a key role in promoting innovation all over the globe. It's been uh, arguably, but, but not so arguably, uh, the innovation engine in many respects. And uh, so, he, and none of this is a surprise to any of you. And here are some factors. Of course, it's, it's uh, benefited from the talent pool that has come here, especially from Europe during the Second World War. And uh, it has benefited from that. And it has continued to be a magnet for scientific talent from all over the world. Uh, you can give different numbers. The number of Nobel Prizes given to people who were born abroad and who came here and became U.S. citizens and won the Nobel Prize as American citizens. That's one metric. I still remember the data from two years ago in my capacity as dean of engineering at MIT. In the School of Engineering at MIT, there are 375 professors. 43% of them, myself included, are foreign-born, and pretty much 43% of them got their first degree abroad. So some other taxpayer trained these people <laughs> to come here and do science. And I think we need to keep that in mind uh, when we talk about policies, immigration policies, and what is the benefit of immigration. The cost of educating this 43% of 375 professors was, born, was, uh, was taken up by uh, taxpayers elsewhere. No matter, um, I have to be very careful because the vice chancellor of the University of Cambridge is uh, sitting right here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so no matter whose metric you look at, if you take the top 10 universities in the world, and I have to say Cambridge University is always there in that ranking, probably seven or eight of the top 10 universities, no matter whose ranking you look at, are still American universities, despite all the problems, including financial problems that they face in this uh, fiscal environment. Some of the appealing features of the higher education system of the U.S. is that we have a very intricate but very well-developed system of public and private universities, private universities uh, that are supported by endowment and philanthropy on the one hand. Uh, tuition still constitutes only a very small fraction of the operating expenses of these universities. Public universities supported by local um, uh, governments Unfortunately, their share of that support is significantly decreasing, in, as, as decreased in recent years. And an intricate network of community colleges, uh, two-year colleges, that promote uh, especially people who are going to universities for the very first time to come into higher education and then go from a two-year college to a four-year college and move, move uh, further up in the economic ladder. We have very well-established infrastructure with ins institutions to identify, support, and nurture research. I want to emphasize this point because there is a lot of talk, and I'll show you some data later, 
that other countries are investing in science and engineering research at a much, much faster rate than the U.S. is doing at the present time. And I would argue that it's not the dollars that you invest in research, it's what you do with the dollars to nurture basic science that's very critical. So it's not that we have put a lot of dollars into basic research in the last 50 years. We also have established, and when we say we, it's not just North America, but Europe, UK, um, and continental Europe, UK and others as well, Japan. There are institutions that support scientific ethics, scientific integrity, respect for and protection of intellectual property, and that's very critical. Without all of those, just investment in science will not yield the best results. And I want to come back to that near the end of my talk. And then also we have unique models of university, industry, national lab interactions uh, in a variety of ways, including what we do at NSF, which I'll come to. So this has made the US um, uh, a leader. And you just look at the last 15 years from internet to um, uh, portable devices, smartphones, uh, social networking media, Yahoo to Facebook to Twitter, and the impact that it has had, the innovation uh, that it has produced on a global scale um, is pretty remarkable. And many of these have happened uh, within the last two decades based on research that agencies like the National Science Foundation supported in the 1960s and 1970s. For example, in the 1960s, NSF supported mathematics research. And before there was a formal field of computer science in global positioning system, primarily for defense applications and satellites. And who would have thought at that time that that would be in our portable devices, which we'll be using all the time. If we had only funded that with the understanding that it'll be in portable devices, NSF would not have given the money and supported that research. That's the point we want to make. In the 1970s, at a time when, the Ameri when American industry thought that mathematical and process modeling was more academic than industrially relevant, NSF supported it. That led to rapid prototyping. That played a huge role in our national manufacturing competitiveness in the 1980s when Japan was seen as a major comp competitor. In the 1990s, NSF supported two young students on the West Coast to do purely mathematical research that at that time had no known practical application. Sergey Brin and Larry Page. So did it create economic value? Did it create jobs? Um, in the 1970s, NSF was the first federal agency to create SBIR programs, Small Business Innovation Research. One of the early recipients of SBIR funding from NSF is what is now known as Qualcomm. They got $25,000 from NSF. So Dr. Irvin Jacobs, who's the chairman, he recently was featured in an NSF video. Qualcomm now employs 21,000 people. Symantec received $25,000 from NSF. They employ 18,000 people now. This is to do basic research. So NSF, since 1950, has been at ground zero of at least the US scientific enterprise. It's a seven plus billion dollar agency. Our overhead rate is less than 6%. 
In fact, this year it's likely to be 5%. So I have the unenviable task of running a $7 billion agency on 5% overhead. We are the only federal agency that gives all the money it receives back to the community for research and education, keeping only 5% for operating expenses. Uh, we have 1,500 employees, and this year we will support 285,000 individuals in the U.S. Uh, university faculty, students, postdocs, uh, community colleges, K through 12 teachers, K through 12 uh, school systems, science museums, public television, uh, Science Friday program, etc., etc., Nova, uh, etc. Since 1952 we have given 46,500 graduate research fellowships. In addition to that, every year, 40,000 graduate students are supported by NSF funding as research assistants. So until 2010, we had 1,000 graduate research fellows per year. We doubled it to 2,000 per year. So last year, when we were facing the possibility of a budget cut, we made a decision on grounds of principles that no matter what happens to NSF budget, we will not cut the number of graduate research fellowships because that's the future scientific workforce of the country, graduate research fellows, postdocs, and young faculty. So we not only doubled the number and kept it at 2,000 per year, we slightly increased the long overdue tuition subsidy, and we also slightly increased the cost of living allowance, and we'll continue to maintain that no matter what the budget is because that's critical for the future of the country. Since 1950, sorry, since 1950, uh, 197 NSF-funded scientists have won the Nobel Prize. So recently I had an opportunity to meet with um, uh, the, the Swedish uh, um, Science Academy uh, leadership, and I pointed out that our task is more difficult because we had to identify them before they do the work. <laughs> Plus, on average, we are given more money to these Nobel laureates than the Sweden has given. <laughs> and last year, in 2011, seven of the Nobel Prize laureates were funded by the National Science Foundation for their work, including the Physics Prize winners, whose work was directly funded by the National Science Foundation in, astro in uh, astronomy. Another example, take the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, roughly, I think, uh, uh, less than half a percent of all scientists um, uh, are elected to the National Academy of Sciences. 440 NSF graduate research fellows have been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, including Secretary, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. He was an NSF graduate research fellow. He received NSF funding for most of his work. And... Uh, uh, which also led to Nobel Prize eventually in physics. Uh, 30 of the NSF graduate fellows have won the Nobel Prize since 1952. And the economic and social impact of this is substantial, so I'll come to that point a little later uh, in, my, in my presentation. In terms of the scope of NSF work, we are mandated by Congress to fund every field of science and engineering, including social behavioral, and economic sciences. That's very important. The only thing we don't fund, because it's the domain of NIH, is biomedical research and clinical research. 
So most recent data that we have, NSF funded 81% of all the basic research done at American universities, 81%. Um, in biology, if you exclude NIH, we fund 67%. That includes agriculture, genetics, uh, plant biology, etc. In mathematics, it's 64%. In social sciences, it's 61%. Environmental science is 59%, engineering 39%. If you average all the fields among federal agencies, our contribution is 22%. I want to make uh, two uh, comments. The first NSF-funded science and technology center was created in the state of Oklahoma to study weather patterns and predict tornado occurrences. And that center, since the late 1980s, has produced a lot of wonderful results, data, Software has spun off companies, and the software is now used all over the world. Still, a few months ago, uh, people died in the state of Oklahoma from tornadoes. So I was asking the director of that center, you've received so much NSF funding, why are people still dying from tornadoes? And his response was the following. It's not our inability to predict the occurrence of tornadoes. In fact, we are very good at it. It's our inability to predict the response of people to warnings about tornadoes that's as much responsible for the, the, the deaths that take place uh, as, the, as the scientific uh, results. Um, there is one other point that I want to mention. At a time of severe budget constraint, we have a lot of pressure on us. If I were working for an industry, I could say if there is a 5% budget cut, I will eliminate certain programs. I could still do that. But here is the consequence. There are intellectual disciplines where if NSF doesn't fund, nobody would fund. If I cut it for two years, departments will close, intellectual disciplines will die, faculty will leave, students will not come into the field, that field will not exist in the US. That's the consequence. So I don't have the luxury of saying, I will eliminate this program to support this program because this is more exciting or I have only limited amount of money because the long-term consequences are quite tremendous and NSF has to take the long-term perspective. We cannot operate on a budget cycle, annual budget cycle, or a two-year election cycle because this, we have to take the long-term perspective and that's what we have to face on a daily basis. I want to go from national NSF to global. So the most recent year for which we have data, if you take the global R&D expenditures adjusted for purchasing power parity, it was 1.4 trillion US dollars. About a, just about exactly a third of that was in North America. Most of that was in the US. A little less than a third is in Europe. And about a third now is in Asia plus Australia, and the Asian part is growing really, really significantly. So there is a dynamic shift in the global balance of scientific research. That's the first point I want to make. The second point is last year, for the first time in the history of science funding, the top 10 Asian countries invested in R&D $400 billion. That's the same as what the US invested. That had never happened before. So they're starting from a lower level, but they're catching up very, very fast. And uh, while it's a cause for concern from a competitive point of view, it's an opportunity from a collaboration point of view. And I want to come back to that a little later. 
it's a busy slide. Fortunately, you don't have to look at the numbers. So what you have on the horizontal axis is R&D as a fraction of GDP for each country. On the vertical axis, you have the number of scientists and engineers per million population. So all you need to focus is on the colors and the size of the circles. So the blue circle, in, the big blue circle in the middle is the U.S. The other blue circles are the other American countries, North America and South America, Brazil, Canada, and other countries. So the blue circles are the Americas. The green circles are Asia. So if you take the areas of the blue circles and the areas of the green circles, they are approximately comparable. And the orange circles are Europe. And, uh, and you can see that it's roughly equal, and you can see where the changes are going to take place. In terms of GDP, you want to be on the right, as far to the right as possible. See who is there. Israel uh, is, is farthest to the right. Then you have Finland, Sweden, South Korea, and Japan. In fact, in, until 2000, the U.S. was number one in terms of R&D investment as a fraction of GDP. Four countries surpassed us in 2000. Germany, South Korea, many of the Scandinavian countries, and Japan, and Israel as well. And uh, so, so that's the global dynamic with respect to um, the, the investments and the number of people. Another way to look at that, so you have the gross expenditure in R&D as a fraction of GDP now on the vertical axis, and the number of scientists and engineers as a fraction of million inhabitants on the horizontal axis. In the extreme left where you don't want to be, the countries that are there now, this is a, in 2008, Colombia, Mexico, and Chile. The U.S. is the yellow dot, number 24. You want to be on the right and uh, at the top. Number 30 is Finland. And Sweden, Finland, Sweden is number 31. So you can see, uh, again, on, on this graph where the different countries are. Now, in terms of global competition, here are some troubling trends. So if you look at the fraction of college graduates who get their undergraduate degree either in natural sciences or in engineering, in Asia, about 20% of all college graduates get their undergraduate degree in engineering. About 13.7% in natural sciences. In Europe, in the European Union, about 12% in both engineering and natural sciences. In the US, about 11% in natural sciences, only 4.4% in engineering. So in fact, a decade ago, we were about 6 to 7%, and it was never very good com by comparison, and it's been declining. So you could ask the question, if we were so bad in engineering in terms of pipeline, how come we were the innovation leaders for the last 50 years? And one of the reasons is that we were able to attract talent from all over the world. And as long as we continue to do that, we had the perfect ecosystem to do that, plus historical factors. And as long as we continue to do that, this may not be a problem, but there are a lot of headwinds in that direction as well. These countries have increasing opportunities. So let me give you one data point from my undergraduate school, the Indian Institute of Technology. My undergraduate graduating class of 1977 in engineering, in my campus, there were 250 graduates. 82% came to the US. 
and 82% stayed in the US, and many of them started companies in Silicon Valley and other places. Go back, uh, fast forward 30 years, same class, same campus, still roughly the same number, class of 2009, still about 250 students, 80% had a chance to come here, only 16% came. And it's not the top 16% necessarily. So you could argue it may not be bad for the, it may be bad for the U US, is it good for India? Where did the top students go? They did not go to science and engineering research. Many of them went into the management track very quickly. So I'm not going to pass judgment whether it's good or bad, you decide. But it's definitely not good for research studies. Um, and many of them don't do PhD. So again, you can decide whether, whether doing PhD is good or bad, but that's the trend. There is another troubling trend here. Only 1.43% of all the college graduates in the US are women engineers for half the population. And even though the number of college graduates who are women has significantly increased in engineering, it has not made a difference yet. And some fields of engineering are doing very well, chemical engineering or materials, materials engineering, but other fields like computer science have not seen much of an improvement. Add to that one other data point in terms of absolute numbers. If you take the number of college freshmen last year in all the 50 states of the US, add to that the number of college freshmen in all of the European Union, and add to that the number of college freshmen in all of Japan, that equals the number of college freshmen last year in China, in one country. So in absolute numbers. So you take the relative proportion in science and engineering, absolute number will come in a minute to investments in science and engineering. This is from 1996 to 2007. The average annual growth in uh, R&D investment China was 22% a year. Of course, they started from a very low base compared to the US. Malaysia, 18%. Thailand, Singapore, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see uh, where the trends are. The only country that was below the US was Japan. That was 5.5%. Even the European Union, with, with its fiscal issues, uh, was above the US. So, so this has been the funding trend. I just want to take one minute to talk about the excitement of science. I don't want this to be a, a, a discouraging lecture because there is so much excitement in science. So in the, in the NSF context, for all the things we do in every field of science and engineering, what is so exciting about science and engineering in the year 2012 compared to five years ago, seven years ago, or 10 years? What is so special now? We could, we could parse it in many different ways, but I would like to look at it the following way. We have never had uh, this kind of what I call a new era of observation. By observation, in the NSF context, we have unprecedented resolution, reach, scope, and sophistication of scientific instrumentation that on the one hand can look at the mega, giga, billions of light years to the edges of the solar system, study black holes um, and neutrino physics and so forth. We can go drill three kilometers deep into the Antarctic ice to look at things from climate change uh, to weather patterns to fish population, all kinds of things. At the other extreme, we have the nano, pico, and femto. We can look at 
at a nanometer resolution, piconewton force resolution, and uh, femtosecond um, temporal resolution. We can look at the biology of a single neuron in the human brain. We can couple that to the psychology of the human mind. We can do that experimentally. We can do that computationally. And we can do that theoretically. Plus, an iPad generates one terabyte of data per day. Look at the number of iPads that were sold just in the last year. So that is what I call citizen science that can participate in science of established scientists. When you put all of that together, the new era of observation also is creating a new era of data and information. So in the NSF context, this is, what, this is why we rolled out the big data launch uh, recently. In the NSF context, how do we get useful information out of this uh, volume of data? How do we filter knowledge? How do we get useful knowledge? How do we archive, retrieve, and have interoperability of the data that we store? And what new science do we need to do now so that 10, 15 years from now, this data will be there uh, to help us to make policy? And uh, so this is part and parcel of a lot of the things we do. Couple that to issues of open access, privacy, cybersecurity, and uh, so this forms a big part of what I'm going to show you next on some of our priority areas in addition to basic science. So there are a number of things that we want to focus on. Human capital development. Not only science and engineering research, but science and engineering education from K through grave, uh, continuing education. And investing in the best people and the best ideas so for $7 billion, we are expected to do pretty much everything, with the singular exception of biomedical research, clinical research. And so in addition to identifying the best people and the best ideas, there are a lot of major issues that we want to focus on. One of our largest activities, and for 2012, it's supported with $200 million, is a program called SEAS, Science, Engineering, and Education for Sustainability. Sustainability of the environment, the planet, uh, transportation, water, energy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, cyber infrastructure framework for the 21st century. These are also interagency collaborations. The National Robotics Initiative is the lead agency is NSF. We also work with NIH, NASA, NIST, and U.S. Department of Agriculture. National Nanotechnology Initiative. Uh, NSF spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year in this program. The intersection of biology with mathematical and physical sciences and engineering. Advanced Manufacturing Initiative, the president just announced it a few months ago. And NSF has a huge upstream role to play in this. Secure and trustworthy computing. The Materials Genome Project, can we go to the periodic table? Create through real-time data sharing of information, computational modeling, so that it takes from the time Alcoa comes up with a new material to the time Boeing puts it in a plane. It's not 20 years. It's less than 10 years. The technology exists. So what kind of science do we need to do to facilitate that? That's one of the objectives of the Materials Genome Project. Computational and data-enabled science and engineering. Big data related to that policies and practices associated with access to data and publications. So even in this tight fiscal environment, science is global, 
and we, we are supporting facilities to the tune of almost a billion dollars around the world. 70% of the astronomy observations in the world are made in the country of Chile. And one-third of all those activities is funded by the National Science Foundation, land-based astronomy, along with our European partners and with our Asian partners. So this is the ALMA facility, which is jointly funded by NSF, the European Southern Observatory, and other entities, will officially open in March of 2013. And this is something that we've been working on. The first data are just starting to come out. On October 15th, we will open the NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, Wyoming Supercomputer Center. It's a $50 million effort for atmospheric science. Uh, it's a computational facility that will uh, facilitate all fields of science and engineering. This is an NSF-owned plane. This is not my aircraft. <laughs> this flies through atmosphere collecting data. This is primarily used by students, scientists, and postdocs and the uh, Gulfstream plane, and that uh, in addition to other uh, vehicles that we have, uh, that's used in experiments. Uh, we spend approximately $400 million a year in Antarctica. We are the lead U.S. agency to support uh, research of all kinds, and it's also science diplomacy. We have 15 countries participating, and that's one of the most challenging but also the exciting uh, parts of my job, dealing with and coordinating the activities of 15 countries in Antarctica, at the, including at the South Pole, the geometric South Pole. This is the facility in CERN in Geneva. Uh, it's an international consortium uh, in Switzerland. And the NSF supports research to the mass of Higgs boson particles. And recently there have been some uh, discoveries. Uh, we support, of course, American scientists to work there and uh, some of the discoveries were supported by NSF. I want to finish off with just a few points on things that we can do strategically no matter what the environment is. The U.S. Agency for International Development funds research in developing countries. NSF funds research in the U.S., but U.S. researchers need to work in developing countries. So until last year, they were, the two agencies were doing this unbeknownst to each other. So it just required a dialogue, not new money. So we got together, Rajiv Shah, who's the head of USAID, and I got together, and we came up with a program called PEER. So we'll seamlessly co um, coordinate what they do with what we do. We will help them with the peer review process, merit review process. So when we announce an award for American scientists, they will announce an award for developing countries, when both of us announce it together, the two groups will already know each other. American scientists will have unique opportunities for facilities in the developing world. Developing country scientists will have immediate access to American scientists at our institutions. It's a win-win situation. So we put Columbia University together with Bangladesh, other universities in the U.S. with African countries in new and interesting ways. So this year, last year we launched six programs. This year, there'll be about 100 programs uh, to the t benefiting to the tune of several hundred million dollars. We launched something called Innovation Core last year. So NSF funds about $6 billion a year of basic research. All of them lead to publications. Some of them lead to patents. A few of them go beyond that. Without taking money from basic research, how can we nudge this? This is how we nudge this. NSF is at the left end where we do basic research, and we will not change from that. 
most of the industry is on the right, and even small businesses start somewhere here before the valley of death. But NSF has all these other activities for a long time, science and technology centers, engineering research centers, accelerating innovation research, industry university collaborative research centers, SPIR, and so forth. But there was a little, not a valley of death, but a ditch of death where you need a small amount of money for a short period of time to take your basic discovery and to see if you can create a useful product, process, or tool, or software. So big, by giving a small amount of money for a short period of time, we can nudge this much faster. It can also change NSF practices. If you want to give money for six months, you don't take eight months to evaluate the proposal. <laughs> so we promise that we will give a decision within one month, from time of submission of a proposal to the time of notification of the award. We delivered it. So this year we have 100 programs. Next year we'll have 300. We'll create a virtual national network and the first year results are really encouraging because a vast number of the projects we funded are going much farther along, and we won't be funding them. Somebody else will be funding them. U.S. degrees by field. If you see the numbers in 1998 to 2008, a lot more women are coming into the science and engineering workforce, but in areas like engineering, it's not increasing that much. So how do we make sure that the increasing number of women who come into the workforce don't leave the workforce? So last uh, uh, September, we announced the NSF Career Life Balance. In fact, we asked the First Lady to announce it in the East Room of the White House on NSF's behalf. We set a national goal. By 2021, it's not just up to NSF. Other agencies should be involved in it too. By 2021, we would like the number of PhD-level women in the STEM workforce to be 41% of the total STEM workforce. Today, it's 26%. But today, we have 41% of the PhDs are women. So 10 years from now, we want the workforce to reflect the output that we have at the PhD level today at colleges. And that's the national goal. The White House endorsed it. I had the Association of American Universities and Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities endorse it. We have to work with universities and other federal agencies. This is our national goal, and NSF will take a lead role, and I already made a commitment with solicitations to facilitate this, because this is very critical for the future of the country, as well as with underrepresented groups. And today we saw in the newspapers that for the first time, in terms of birth, one-year-old one and younger, uh, the, the, the minority is the majority uh, in terms of birth last year. So this is going to be the trend, and that group is severely underrepresented. NSF currently spends somewhere between $400 million and $700 million a year for broadening participation. This is extremely critical for the future of the country. I'm just going to close with just a couple of slides. As more and more countries engage in, uh, invest heavily in science, how do we leverage what we invest with what they invest? So we launched a program last October called SAVI, Science Across Virtual Institutes. So take mathematics as an example. We fund seven centers in the US in mathematics. We ask American scientists, in the areas in which you work, we'll give you money to hold workshops. You identify the countries that you want to collaborate with. We will talk to the leadership of the country and ask them how they can match NSF's investment in the US in their own countries. So they identify Asia, 
we went to leadership of uh, science funding agencies in Asia. In fact, in one case, we told them, we, we will put in $6 million a year. How much will you put in? They came back and said, we'll put in $20 million a year. So that's the power of leverage, which we can increasingly use. We did the same thing with Finland in wireless communication. And we have another one in physics of living system. We're going to be another, announcing another one in, in about two months with the European Commission. And we are discussing another one with Japan in the area of risk assessment and disaster mitigation. We launched a program for interdisciplinary research called, uh, there's a long acronym called INSPIRE. And, uh, and this is a program where this year we will invest $24 million, and next year it will be $63 million. I want to close with uh, this slide. So two days ago, uh, we launched, um, uh, we had a meeting at NSF. I invited G20 plus OECD countries. That's 46 countries. And we, the reason we invited those countries to come to NSF is the room where we could host it, the largest room can only seat 50 people around the table. And uh, so that's why we restricted it after uh, uh, talking to the State Department. Here is the motivation behind this. As more and more countries, especially in rapidly developing countries, um, uh, agencies in rapidly developing countries put a lot of money into research, five years from now or seven years from now, if you want to collaborate with them, perhaps even co-fund activities with them, what is the lowest barrier that we need to overcome? It's not a problem between Europe and the U.S., but it's a problem with a number of, not a problem, it's an issue with a number of developing countries because they are in a different stage of development than we are. The issue is understanding common principles, having common principles of scientific peer review or merit review. So we got this group together. This is the first time heads of 46, 47 science funding agencies from 47 countries gathered in one place at one time to discuss a common issue. So we got together. We had regional meetings that led up to this. Uh, most of our, our European colleagues were here, were their Asian colleagues, South American colleagues. Africa was there. And we released a common principles of scientific peer review with six principles. And I articulated a vision for us, and that is good science anywhere is good for science everywhere. But that's not an unqualified statement. It's a qualified statement, provided that we have free and open and transparent process for peer review and sharing of information. We have scientific ethics and integrity, and we have respect for and protection of intellectual property. So what we will do is that we formed earlier this week, two days ago, day before yesterday, a virtual organization called the Global Research Council. There is a difference between British English and American English. Council in England means a funding agency. In the US, National Research Council is not a funding agency. So we call it a council, and not in the notion of a funding agency, but a, a, a powerful policy-making enterprise. This was unanimously endorsed by this group. And what we will do is we'll take up a policy issue every year, which nobody has to sign. There is no MOU. We collectively gather, we do regional meetings around the world. NSF will staff them for next year, as we did for last year. This year, we developed common principles for peer review based on best practices in Europe and the US. Next year, we're going to do that for scientific integrity. We're also going to take up issues, which will take many years to do, on access to information and data, eventually leading up to open 
access to information and data. It's a very complex issue, and how do we get there? And uh, our goal is that five years from now, if we address all of this, we will all, at least all be talking the same language. We are not dictating to somebody else what they should do based on our practices. They are at the table. And uh, so the first, principles, first set of principles document was just released. So the next meeting will be co-hosted by Brazil and Germany. It will be held in Berlin, in the Academy in Berlin, on the 28th and 29th of May. At that meeting, this group will collectively, Global Research Council will collectively re release the scientific integrity document that we collectively develop based on uh, best practices and commonly understood uh, philosophies. So with this, I would like to stop and uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you. Good evening. We now have a couple minutes for question and answer. Um, you're going to want to look for myself or my colleague Mike, and we'll come around to you with a microphone. Uh, and we'll start in the center here, sir. Uh, you mentioned the, the U.S. high reliance on foreign-born scientists on one hand. On the other hand, uh, there seems to be a trend that we may losing some of those uh, uh, scientists because of the international development. You have proposed uh, many things like uh, virtual institute and also international cooperation to, uh, capture, to capture some of those talent. My question is, is there still a need for you to uh, increase incentive or otherwise to keep you know, many of these uh, foreign scientists to physically in the United States? I, so there are, uh, there are a number of ways in which we can look at that. I think no country can rely exclusively on foreign talent. So there has to be domestic talent for national security uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I think that's why human capital development is a very strong part of what we have to do. So NSF spends $1.1 billion a year on STEM-targeted programs at all levels just for that purpose. This is why graduate student fellowships for domestic students, postdoctoral fellowships, young faculty career awards is very critical. Uh, so we cannot replace foreign talent coming here. Uh, we cannot use that as the sole basis for development of human capital. Uh, that's a given. There are, it, it, it's a complex issue in the sense, even though the, the headwinds are very severe, the number of students wanting to come to graduate school in the U.S. has not subsided. In fact, it has increased. It continues to. U.S. still seems to be the preferred des destination. So even the last year's data seems to increase. There are a lot more students wanting to come here to do education. Even though there is the potential that many of them will go back because of better opportunities elsewhere than here, economic opportunities, we don't have a trend yet that that is still the case. So, of course, there are immigration issues, immigration policies that need to be looked at. There are a number of uh, bills that are floating in Congress right now related to that. And uh, so I think it has to be a balance. I think human capital development, you know, NSF, NIH, and other agencies, we cannot, we have to do that at the same time we have to look at opportunities to sustain, the, make the U.S. a magnet for talent from anywhere in the world, because that has helped us quite a bit. That, that's, how, that, that's the history of this country. So I think it, it, it's a fine balance between the two. One cannot come at the expense of the other. Question here on your right. 
uh, the United States uh, uh, budgets for basic research are under significant pressure for next year and probably subsequent years. Uh, what do you see as the uh, probable impact of, of the of the funding trend, which where funding isn't even keeping up with inflation and sometimes is significantly below the inf inflation rate? Um, it is an issue. In fact, uh, you know, the, the previous um, ad, uh, White House administration um, uh, articulated a desire, uh, which was endorsed uh, thanks to America, com um, uh, the, the rising above the gathering storm report, to double the budget of NSF, NIST, and DOE basic science by 2016. And we are definitely off the track. And the Obama administration has continued to support the desire to do that. So even though NSF, NIST, and DOE science um, have been receiving increases even in this climate, uh, we're not going to double for the foreseeable future at this rate. And I think that's going to be a reality we have to live with. We continue to justify. The president has proposed a 4.8% increase for NSF for 2013, and the House has marked up. Um, the Republican-controlled House has given 4.3% in their latest markup, and the Democratic-controlled Senate has marked up 3.4% increase for NSF for 2013. So there is bipartisan support still for basic research, but not at the level we all would have liked to have seen, or everyone would have liked to have seen at this point. I think you know we we cannot cut back too much because a, because of a competition and talent uh, competition for talent then scientists will leave also, um, but we'll wait and see. Hopefully, we'll come out of this and there'll be healthier increases for science. We have time for one final question here in the front, sir. Super. Thank you very much for an excellent talk. Could I just ask you one of the issues that universities face globally? is goes back to your very first uh, observation which is that we're all searching for the paradigm shifting research but that requires basic research but it requires a second component and that's the commitment to invest over the long term in these dimensions increasingly we're seeing governments around the world europe us and even china and asia moving to the short term immediately applicable areas how do you see this trend developing in the context of a relatively low level of increase in funding so we don't have the headroom to being able to sustain the paradigm shifting uh, research in terms of the duration of funding that it is likely to be able to attract when it will have unpopular consequences on the short-term investment necessary for immediately applied research? No, th that's a great question. So uh, we, we have two arguments that I give in response to that in, in my uh, testimony to Congress on the budget. It comes up every year. NSF is the only federal agency that is required to focus attention on basic research. And basic research, by definition, has to have a long-term perspective. And I also try to point out the, the examples that I gave about GPS or Google. Uh, they were funded because they create knowledge it's funding the best people and the best ideas, irrespectively of whether it'll produce economic value tomorrow or next year or two years from now. Here is another example of this. In 1999, when President Clinton came to Caltech and announced the National Nanotechnology Initiative, 
NSF was the first agency to start nanoscience and nanoengineering centers purely to do basic research. There, were, there was no requirement that it be translational. So now I have the data points after about 12 years. NSF-funded nanoscience and nanoengineering centers alone created for the sole purpose of doing basic research I've produced 180 companies that involve 1,200 major corporations, creating tens of thousands of jobs. And I think we need to keep that in mind. And the other thing I mentioned repeatedly in my testimonies and speeches is um, actually a British uh, uh, anecdote. When, uh, the, uh, when Michael Faraday, who first produced electricity, um, in, in England, met the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, William Gladstone. Mr. Gladstone asked him, Mr. Faraday, what is the value of your research? And why should the British government, or the, why should England pay for this? To which Mr. Faraday responded, sir, one day you will tax it. <laughs> <laughs> so my response is, NSF, NSF receives seven billion dollars a year from US taxpayer money. But if you look at the return to the US Treasury from NSF produced uh, fruits, uh, it's many, many, many times seven billion dollars and that's why we should support. It's not an easy tax. That's why we, we in, in the Innovation Corp chart that I showed, most of it is basic research. Uh, two and a half percent of our basic research funding is for SPIR and it's only two and a half percent. ICOR is minuscule, one one thousandth of our basic research budget. So our focus is basic research, but anything we can do to nudge the basic research closer to economic value, perhaps more rapid economic value will do, but not at the expense of basic research funding. So that's, that's how I've been trying to articulate this. Uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Suresh. Thank you. Thank you very this much. presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.
The Haskins Lectureship on Science Policy was established through the generosity of Carol P. and Edna Haskins, founders of Haskins Laboratories. The Haskins were dedicated to improving the nation's understanding of the relationship between scientific progress and sound public policy. Carol Haskins was a member of the Rand Corporation's Board of Trustees for 20 years and served as an advisory trustee and member of the President's Council. Subra Suresh, director of the National Science Foundation, is the ninth Haskins Laureate. He spoke at RAND on May 17, 2012.